We're back, and I'm very pleased to say a special welcome to our next guest. He's one of our regulars here. I'm happy for that and always look forward to our conversations. His name is Robert Charles. He served, among other things, as an assistant secretary of state during the George W. Bush administration. He also has served his country in a number of other capacities, including that of a naval officer and as a congressional counsel for the Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush White Houses. A man of many parts, an author, uh, as well as uh, an essayist of uh, tremendous productivity, especially as the spokesman for a terrific organization, the Association for Mature American Citizens. You can follow Robert Charles' work there at amac.us. Mr. Secretary, welcome back. Always good to have you with us, sir. Thank you, Frank. Thank you very much. I wanted to follow up on a conversation I began uh, earlier in the program with James Carafano about the Biden G virtual summit that took place last night. I'd like to get your take on it based on such reporting as we've had about what transpired. You know, I have three or four observations, Frank, about that summit. And uh, they start, if I can start with the probably least significant, but nevertheless important one, which is that it's gotten very little uh, attention by the press. If you were to go to the news outlets this morning, you'd find almost nothing about it, nothing substantive. And I think that's significant too, because I think there's a hush-hush that nothing good can have come from this summit uh, as far as uh, any advancing of United States vital interests. But my bigger concerns are, are two or three. One, there seems to be a misunderstanding broadly about proportionality. China is unequivocally our largest threat, bar none. And yet the perception of the press uh, and the perception that's being promoted by this White House is that this is ho-hum, you know, like a meeting, another meeting with Botswana or Liberia, and we'll just keep moving forward. That's not at all what this is. This is tantamount to the first or second real uh, engagement that uh, prior presidents have had with former number one adversaries. So, you know, Ronald Reagan, dealing with the uh, initial uh, iterations of the Soviet Union uh, under Brezhnev and Andropov before and Chenyenko before uh, Gorbachev, things like that. And, and, and I'm not predicting that as a future parallel path. I'm just saying that the magnitude of the relationship is not being understood or is, or is being intentionally misrepresented as less significant than it is. It is tremendously important. A third observation, Frank, and that is that, you know, what happened in this summit, which was supposed to have lasted three hours. Can you imagine three three hours of very significant, supposedly very significant dialogue occurring and no one really bothers to talk about it. What ha really happened is that I think a giant uh, yawn or pass occurred and China was very aware of that. I I've read what I can get uh, my hands on. I've started to go through the actual uh, tapes, which are, which are long on translation. But, but what you come away with is a feeling that, that there's a misunderstanding of, of China's aggression. China is being deliberately, provocatively aggressive, not just toward Taiwan, but toward the entire region. Only under, under such circumstances would you see Australia speaking up and saying preemptively, by the way, if the United States had to defend Taiwan, we're at your side. Well, that sounds like Australia saying prior to World War II, if Japan happens to move south, we're, we're, we're going to be backing up the United States. Well, the United States hasn't done anything yet to make clear that they, I mean, their, their words are cheap. And what we hear yeah, to be backed up. And, and words are cheap. And the last thing I'll say is, I think it also fails to grasp a larger, a, a larger sequence of accelerating events. 
if you look at the sequence of invasions of uh, of Taiwan's airspace, if you look at the acceleration, let's say from the moment Hong Kong really went down uh, to Chinese communism, uh, despite all the promises that it wouldn't to today, you see an accelerating accelerating operational tempo in the way that China is approaching Taiwan. There is a parallel set of events occurring on the Ukrainian border. And I, what I see here is that uh, China and Russia are in effect, in effect, playing each other's cards against the United States and that the United States, uh, through Biden, is basically sitting back on its haunches and either paying no attention or, or in a sense, uh, sort of intuitively or um, uh, sort of inferring that, uh, let's just put it this way, words are cheap. And, and all we're seeing, we're not seeing carrier battle groups step up. We're not seeing uh, the kinds of reactions we would have gotten during Reagan or Bush 41. We're seeing essentially uh, not deterrence, but a kind of passiveness. And to my view, China will take advantage of passive behavior wherever it sees it. And Xi is made clear he's doing that. So to me, the irony is you have this enormous summit and you hear almost nothing about it. And that's because probably nothing really substantive occurred. Well, again, my concern is, and in a way it's implicit in what you've said, Bobby Charles, that that passivity, whether it's being interpreted as I think probably it is by Xi as the behavior of someone who is now under control. Uh, our colleague Sam Faddis said on this program yesterday, you know, we've got a Manchurian president. And what we're dealing with here are the consequences of that, I'm afraid, in terms of emboldening and probably empowering the Chinese communist leadership to become more aggressive yet. These are really important insights. I would just add that in addition to the Russian piece of this, um, there are two other actors out there who are probably poised to misbehave as well. One of them is um, Iran. Uh, and I'd like to ask you, Bobby, to talk a little bit about what we're seeing in the way of evidence of intensifying preparations by Israel to contend with the nuclear threat that is now no longer really an abstraction, but very imminent indeed out of Iran, and how the United States government is dealing with the Israelis at this perilous moment. Yeah, so let me take sort of an outer circle and inner circle. Outer circle, those that are your age and my age, and, and I'll call them the AMAC generation, uh, those who are old enough to have lived through the history of uh, the uh, Arab-Israeli conflicts of the 1970s, uh, the Soviet Union, and to have watched China's climb to a position of, uh, of real hostility to the world and to freedom, they have a perspective on all this. And they look at these events as I do. And I look at that event in particular, I look at the Middle East, and I say, this is not, not a good sign, because when this kind of flagging goes up, uh, events follow that we wish uh, wouldn't. And, and so, you know, you, if, you, if you look at what Iran is doing, just like we just a moment ago discussed China in particular, they lean forward into weakness. And China has always, I mean, uh, Iran has always done that, this regime. They, they promote terrorism and they promote it more when they are given room to do so. And they promote it uh, less when someone is aggressively confronting them. Um, and, and, and that's the law of deterrence. I mean, deterrence is if you, if you think you'll get in trouble by doing 
doing something, you don't do it. If you think you're going to get away with it, you do it. Now we've we've now got because of the Obama years, we uh, we've got a, a situation where Iran really uh, is accelerating their own up tempo on nuclear weapons development. And you know you cannot be Israel uh, with the Holy Land and and its democracy being one of really 22 countries of the Middle East uh, that upholds those values. Uh, you cannot see this and not decide that you yourself now have to take on the, the mantle of deterrence, that you yourself have to take on alone if necessary. I mean, it's it's kind of like the Winston Churchill speech before World War II. You know, we will do this and we will do this alone if we have to. But uh, he, of course, was prevailing, asking the United States to step up and help, uh, which eventually we did. But but reality is this is what this is what Israel's doing. They're saying alone if we must, because this is a, an aggressor that is that is going to come into possession if we don't do something more more deterrent related into possession of nuclear uh, weapons. And so, you know, if you can terrorize the world without nuclear weapons, what do you think you can do with them? I guess I would leave you with that. Well, we know what they could do with them, uh, among other things, do what they've intended from the inception of this horrific regime in Tehran, namely death to the little Satan and death to the great Satan, Israel and the United States, respectively. Um, Bobby, let me turn to one other piece of what I know from your experience inside senior levels of the United States government must be, well, something portentous to say the least. Uh, and that is the reported friction that is now breaking out into the open, uh, notably in a CNN special report, basically, on Kamala Harris's flailing as a vice president. And the reported counterattack that her you know, allies are poised to make against Joe Biden for his flailing as president. Um, neither of these are, are terribly appealing individuals, needless to say, and I fear that what we're looking at is likely to be a, um, a very much heightened degree of discord within the United States government, which likely means more um, dangers uh, for our country, don't you think? Yeah, you know, I, I think, Frank, that those who are students of human nature, and probably your listeners are among the better students of human nature, know that a, a bad quality in somebody tends to be the thing that irritates them most about another person. So incompetence abhors incompetence as a mirror reflection. And I think what you're seeing, uh, you know, Biden is clearly demonstrating day upon day, both bad policy decisions, uh, leaning hard left and in the incompetence and then the then the ricochet back of American disapproval of that I, down in the 30s now uh, in terms of his approval rating and, and, and Kamala Harris is doing the exact same I'm sorry. What did I what did I say? No, no, no. I just want to make clear you were talking about Joe Biden, the president of the United States, right. Joe, having Joe, approval rating right. down in the 30s, which is extraordinary. Yeah, Joe Biden. Yeah. So, yes, exactly. To pick that up, Joe Biden's approval rating, he's he's governing now with roughly a third of the country behind him and that probably soft support. So you see the mirror image of this in in Kamala Harris's polls. And of course, again, sort of a mutual uh, mutual recrimination in order to sort of take the other one uh, down in advancement of their own position. It, the saddest part of this really, I mean, you, you could be a Republican or, an, or a conservative or an independent or someone who is a moderate Democrat. And you could look at this and say, well, I guess this is good because they're, uh, you know, sort of like the uh, Monty Python scene with these two uh, knights that are hitting each other till there's nothing left. They're taking each other down with their leftist positions. The, ir 
Yeah. The irony is, however, that there is a much bigger reality and it is a much more concerning reality and it is a much more sobering reality. And that is that everybody around the world sees what we see. And that means that China sees it, Iran sees it, Russia sees it, uh, all of those that have sort of secondary uh, allegiances uh, and are wondering whether they should line up behind China or behind the United States, they see this in-house fighting. And what they see is if the battle is to sort of somehow win domestic politics, uh, or to put it differently, if you, if you look at this and you see that it may have some benefit for 2022 or 2024 for the Republican Party, the sad part is in the interim, we're witnessing a sort of a, a public display of, um, of not just rancor uh, and mutual recrimination, but weakness within the uh, executive branch of the government. And that, that to me, is the, is the real problem. Oh, it is. And, and it will be almost certainly an irresistible temptation to exploit what's going on here on the part of uh, our adversaries, as we were just talking about. Among those adversaries is one other country that hasn't gotten as much attention of late as it did during, well, the Trump years especially, and that is North Korea. And there's a move afoot in the United States Congress. I don't know that it's got much prospect of passage there, but a piece of legislation known as H.R. 3446, the Peace on the Korean Peninsula Act, as it's known, is becoming, it seems, a new push or focus of effort for leftists primarily in the United States House of Representatives on the Biden administration to do the bidding of basically, well, North Korean influence operatives. We're going to be talking momentarily with a man who studied those individuals and their operations very closely, Lawrence Peck. But I did want to just ask you about the advisability from your point of view, um, especially you know with your experience with international diplomacy and the implications that even uh, negotiations of a bad idea, let alone its consummation, can have for you know very real security. Uh, equities. Uh, in this case, our interests in a free and independent and sovereign South Korea, to which we've devoted enormous um, numbers of lives and treasure over many years, including, of course, the sacrifice in the Korean War. But Bobby, what, what are your thoughts about this idea that maybe Joe Biden would seize upon this as, a, as an initiative that could get him some chops in the, uh, in the diplomatic arena if he were to fall in behind this notion that we ought to just, well, have a peace agreement with North Korea to end this uh, so-called endless war there? And uh, what would the implications likely be if we were to do that? Yeah, I think, Frank, again, this goes to the point that we live in a superficial age. Uh, and then there are those that take advantage of that uh, superficiality of our thought and uh, imagine that a war will end by just declaring it over. Like uh, you have very aptly noted, uh, the Afghanistan debacle is not over. We still have thousands of American credentialed personnel in there who are being hunted down and killed. Uh, and uh, that's a fact. Uh, but reality is you can't you can't you can't just say, well, the, the Korean War, which, uh, you know, which which we would like to genuinely on terms that are uh, uh, are uh, agreeable to the South Koreans. You know, we would like to liberalize North Korea. We would like to bring a degree of peace that's not just superficial. But the worst thing you could potentially do here is uh, is abandon your South Korean ally uh 
and imagine that you can somehow just declare things over, North Korea would immediately take advantage of that. And by the way, who's behind North Korea? We all know China's really behind North Korea in many, many respects, as, as unique as that strangely uh, you know, communist slash autocratic regime is. Uh, China is their is their lifeline, and China, you know, will wield that sword in any way they can. So the progressive bill that you're talking about, the bill that is pushed by the left, uh, is, to my view, uh, at the very least, it it undermines deterrence. It is a bad idea. At the at at the at the worst, uh, it's something that could actually promote uh, conflict, and and that is the worst of all worlds, where we have a, you know, we work towards stability. We, you know, that that war was very costly. Just go back and have anybody can go back and look at the Chosin Reservoir engagement and how horrible that the Korean War really was, and and what we got from that was at least a line that preserves freedom south of that line. To give up that line, to imagine that all of those American lives didn't count, to imagine that somehow we'll declare uh, you know, peace in our time like Chamberlain and walk away uh, is absurd. There's nothing to It's dangerous. It's actually, it's actually patently geopolitically dangerous. Bobby, this is a subject to which I look forward to returning with you. We are hard out of time. Come back to us again very soon, if you would. And thanks in the meantime for your cumulative and uh, continuing service to our country, notably with IMAC.us. Keep it up. We'll talk with you again soon. Robert Charles. Next up, we'll speak with Lawrence Pack about this influence operation that is producing potentially very dangerous legislation in the United States Congress.